You know, I'm really not going to bite or spit if you would like to move closer. <laughs> I'm starting to get a complex. Nobody wants to sit close. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. I knew you'd step up to the plate. October 30th, 1974. How many of you remember the date? Surely we must have a single fan of boxing in here. You don't remember the rumble in the jungle? Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman. How many of you remember that fight? Muhammad Ali used one of the most infamous tactics in boxing. It was called the rope-a-dope. I'm surprised most of you don't remember that. George Foreman had pummeled his previous two appointment, uh, uh, opponents. He had pounded them with his decimating right hand and, and uh, knocked both of his previous appointments out in the first couple of rounds. And Muhammad Ali going up against a much superior physical athlete decided he needed a strategy because he was going to get beat to a pulp. So what he decided to do was to lean against the ropes, cover his head, and take all the body blows that he could possibly stand. And people thought his strategy was suicidal because George Foreman uh, would break his ribs and do everything else to him. So about seven rounds into the fight, George Foreman was just he had literally won every round of the fight, according to the commentators. But what happened? His arms got a little heavy, right? He got tired from beating the guy. <laughs> so his arms dropped. And what happens when the arms drop? Well, you're a sitting duck. And about the eighth round, Muhammad Ali came off the ropes. He was just full of energy. And he pounded George Foreman with a couple of uh, punches. And George Foreman fell flat on the mat and never got up. It was an interesting strategy that nobody had ever tried before, and one commentator watching the fight in the seventh round, actually one of Foreman's previous defeats, said, George is fighting stupid. And uh, indeed he was. The reason I tell you that story is because I believe the church, like George Foreman, is fighting stupid when it comes to the doctrines of salvation. We no longer preach people being sinners, we talk about the consequences of sin. We throw punch after punch, and yet we only grow tireder and our opponent grows stronger. We grow weaker and weaker. And I speak in regards to the topic of total depravity this morning. You know, we love to debate the finer nuances of Calvinism. We love to talk about the limited atonement or the perseverance of the saints or eternal security or irresistible grace. But it seems that everybody kind of bypasses the topic that all the other points hinge on, and that is total depravity. Man is hopelessly, helplessly lost. He is dead in his sin and trespasses. I want to read to you a quote this morning by A.W. Pink. He's a famous uh, commentator from the last century. Instead of proclaiming the heinousness of sin, there has been a dwelling more upon its inconveniences and the abasing portrayal of the lost condition of man as set forth in Holy Writ has been obscured, if not obliterated, by flattering disquisitions on human advancements. If the popular religions of the churches, including nine-tenths of what is termed evangelical Christianity, be tested at this point, it will be found that it clashes directly with man's fallen, ruined, and spiritually dead condition. See, we tell people about the consequences of sin. We tell them you don't want to get entangled in sin, but we don't directly tell them they are sinners and that they are dead in their trespasses in sin. So the question is this this morning. How far did we fall in the garden? How far did we fall... When Adam and Eve fell, did that affect our ability to please God? Did that affect our ability to choose to do good? 
I believe the answer is yes, because Ephesians 2 says what? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead there, the word in the Greek is nekros. It means dead. (laughs) It means you have no spiritual life. It is impossible for you to please God apart from him taking the first step. So, your sermon title this morning, Help, I've Fallen and I Can't Get Up. May I suggest to you that this morning we have fallen so far and so hard that we can't possibly get up on our own apart from God's grace. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 14 in your Bibles, if you're not already there. Just going to work through the first three verses of Psalm 14. This is a pen by David, and the date is unknown. It's circa 1000 B.C. Psalm 14, we'll read verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This morning we're going to see three proofs of man's total depravity from this passage so that we will comprehend our utter dependence upon God's grace and mercy. My intention in the next two weeks while I'm here and David is enjoying himself is to to widen the vast gulf between us and God. (laughs) Folks, there is an unbridgeable gulf between man and God and, and my intention is to widen that gulf if I can. The first proof, look at verse 1, our sin is personal. Our sin is personal. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally, it reads, he has said a fool in the heart of him, there is no God. Our sin is personal. The first question you might be thinking is, well, who's the fool? Who is the fool? Well, Scripture teaches us that there is actually a scale of idiots. (laughs) So you'll be happy to know you may fall somewhere along this spectrum of foolishness this morning. The first one is in Proverbs 14, 15, and that is, uh, in the Hebrew, it's pethi, and that, that is somebody who is just simple or naive like a child. They're naive. They just don't know any better. The second one is in Proverbs 10.8, and that one is the word kassil, and that is silly or stupid. Scripture actually calls people stupid. In the middle of the road, we have a word called a wheel. It is Proverbs 7.22, and that is a fool. And that is similar to what we have in the text here. This is the word naval, and naval is a fool. It is one Although Naval is a moral fool, he is not only somebody who doesn't have the mental understanding, but he is also somebody who morally um, refuses God. He distances himself from God and says, I don't want you, I don't need you, I'll do it on my own. There is Ecclesiastes 2.19 as well. You can look there. And the, the top of the scale is an outright madman and his... The word there is holel. It's the top of the scale. It's Proverbs 26, 18. So you see Naval is kind of in the middle of the road. The fool that's talked about here in the scripture is kind of the middle of the spectrum. You've got somebody who's totally naive and you've got somebody who's a total madman. And in the middle falls this word here. The word itself means relaxed or powerless in a sense that they're powerless to do anything good on their own. They're um, apostates, if you will. They're held in bondage. So it's intellectual and it's moral foolishness. It's not a specific fool that the writer is talking about here. This is what's called the generic use of a singular. It's a fool. Uh, Your scripture translated as the fool. It could just as well be that, but it's any old fool. It's all fools. All fools say in their heart, what? There is no God. And understand that it is not 
There's three things that I really want to pull out of this, this first verse for you, and there's three things about the fool that you want to notice. One, what, is they, what do they say? What do they say? They say there is no God, literally, ain't Elohim. There is no creator God. There is no judge God. There is not a God that I feel that I'm accountable to. It's not that they deny the existence of God. They don't use the term Yahweh here. They're not saying he doesn't exist at all. What they're saying is that he doesn't matter to my life and I don't want to have anything to do with him. Secondly, where do they say it? Well, literally, in the heart of him, the fool says, in the heart of him, down here, and we know the heart to be what? It is the seat of our volition and our will. In our heart of hearts, we deny that God has any place in our lives. That is what it is saying. It's, it's in the heart. He refuses God. Romans 1 tells us that man knows God exists, right? Because God has placed his law in there. But it tells us that man refuses him and refuses to give him thanks. He, he denies him. What do they do? Well, that's the second part of the verse. What does it say? There is no one who does good. Literally, there is not a doer of good. It's not enough that the fool's thinking is an error, but then that error is played out in his actions. I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah 32.6. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 32.6. This is one of the other uses of the word naval in the Old Testament. The fool... And this sort of describes the fool's actions. Isaiah 32, 6. It says, For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines towards wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. You see there, it is a denial of God. He refuses God, but then his actions play out in those around him. The fool says, I don't want to have anything to do with God, and I'm turning my back on God. And beyond that, then that rebellion manifests itself in a hatred of other people as well. I want to turn to you also. Well, don't turn there. Just listen. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are... There is no God. In this, in this psalm, Psalm 10.4, we see that wickedness is another name for foolishness. He not only denies God's existence, but then he turns his back on God and he takes it out on other people. Turn back to Psalm 14. The second half of verse 1, he says... Again, they, notice that it is now no longer a singular use, it is plural, a fool or the fool, and then you get to the second half and it says they. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is not a doer of good among them. There's not a doer of good. Now, the word corrupt, the usage of this word generally carries with it the idea of ruined or destroyed. I'm going to have you turn to 2 Corinthians 4, if you will, for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of the gospel. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I'll just stop right there. We do not, verse 5 says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. Why? Well, because 
the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And the, the reason I had to turn here is because the word perishing is actually the word destroyed. It's like the word corrupt in Psalm 14. Man is corrupt to the core. The gospel is veiled to him. He's held in the power of Satan's grip, it says. And therefore, he cannot turn to God even if he wanted to. So why do we spend so much time appealing to the flesh? Why do we set up amusement parks at our churches? Why do we play music that will appeal to fleshly desires? Why do we go down the roads of trying to make people comfortable? Now, I'm not talking about being hospitable. We should be very hospitable. We should be extremely hospitable because Christ was hospitable. But what I'm saying is, should we appeal to man's natural desires if all of his desires are corrupt? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that changes the way we do business. It should. The gospel is veiled to those who are blind. The message should be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Turn back to Psalm 14. It says that all of his deeds are abominable. Literally abhorred. They're hated by God. They have no merit. They have no weight before God. He is unable to do anything to please God in his natural state. Isaiah 64, 6, we quote it often, but it says that all of a man's works are like filthy rags to God. You say, look, God, look what I have for you, a pile of filthy rags. God said, that's great. Why don't you hang on to those? <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7.20, you can write that down as another reference. There is not a doer of good. I believe it carries more weight that way than saying there is no one who does good. Because no one who does good implies an action. A person does not do good things. Uh, there's nobody who is doing good things. But if you say it the other way, there is not a doer of good. What you're really saying is the person. The person is the sinner, not their actions. You understand the difference? I think that's where things get lost in translation sometimes. And why did David write this? And I think this is important for us to see. If you look at the Jewish Old Testament, it is different than our Old Testament in the way the books are arranged. And why is that? Well, because... The Old Testament for the Jews was the law, the prophets, and the writings. For us, we have taken the books that were originally prophecy for the Jews, and we have turned them into history books. And we lose the nuances of prophecy in that way. Uh, if you look at the law, what do we have? We have the Garden of Eden. Man fell into sin, right? Uh, then what do we have? We have the flood. Man's wickedness got so great upon the earth, God had to destroy him, right? Then you have the Tower of Babel. Man rebelled against God, refused to spread out. They stayed in one place. And then what do you have beyond that? You have the wilderness wanderings that show you continually over and over man's inability to, to comply with God's rules. Then you get to the prophets. You get to Joshua, and you start to see partial obedience with Israel. And then you get to the period of Judges, and then it is outright disobedience to God and his word. And by the time David comes on the scene, he has seen man's inability throughout all that time period to simply obey God. And so David looks at all that and he says, there's not a single doer of good. And David knew that personally about himself, didn't he? Because David fell into sin as well. David wrote later in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. From the time of his birth, he was a sinner and he knew it. Even the best of men are men at best, one writer said. Jeremiah 17.9, we all know it. One author wrote this. He said, man is in fact caught up in a vicious circle. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? 
The point is, as Jeremiah says, that human beings cannot understand the plight they themselves are in. They cannot understand that education and psychology are not enough to change their whole nature, the heart. It can only be done from outside by a power that is sufficient to break through the vicious circle, and that power is the grace and forgiveness of God. Man cannot self-reform. Should we be surprised when we read in the newspaper recently, it's startling, but it it gives us a glimpse of man's depravity, a little boy on on a baseball team, what does he do? He takes a bat and he beats the other kid to death with a baseball bat. Why do you think he did that? Everybody says on the news, he's always been such a good kid. I don't understand it. Folks, he was just playing out what was in his heart. Didn't Jesus say, Matthew 5.19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. He later said, Behold, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. We shouldn't be surprised when we see it. And not all of us are as evil as we could be. We're not as bad as we could be. But the depravity is there. Our sin is personal. It's lurking in our hearts. Do you understand that that's why Christ could not have died just to make sin available? This is very important. Christ could not have died just to make sin just to make salvation available to people. Why? Because in the corruptness of our hearts, how many of us would have turned to him by faith? Answer? Zero. There is none who does good. There is nobody who seeks after God. No, not one. We don't have to go any farther than our own hearts to see this truth, folks. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. He said, let us lament the corruption of our nature and see what need we have of the grace of God. Let us not marvel that we are told we must be born again, and we must not rest in anything short of union with Christ and a new creation to holiness by his Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that transforms the heart. I worked in respiratory for 14 years, and I remember one of the things that we used to see was what we called attention pneumothorax. It's a big word, but what it means is that an air hole blows out in one lung, and what happens is air seeps out into the cavity around the lung and it begins to press this way on the other lung until it compresses so bad that it compresses on the heart. It causes the heart to slow down and then people die of a heart attack. So what you do is you poke a hole in the side and you release the air pressure and everything goes back to normal. But the illustration is that our heart is being pressed on by sin. Our heart is hopelessly and helplessly sick. We've got a layer of fat around our hearts, if you will, that needs to be cut out of there so that our hearts can feel. And that is only accomplished by a work of the Spirit. One last place I want to take you. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. We're familiar with this passage of Scripture. It it is Paul's... um, Sermon on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Stop right there. That is a graphic picture of man's total inability. God is right there, and man is groping around in the darkness looking for him, and he can't find him. That's what Paul is saying. Man is lost, hopelessly, helplessly lost, And if you'll notice, God has made man from... He has moved man on the face of the earth. He has determined their boundaries. He has set them in their places 
with the express purpose, verse 27, that they would seek him. And yet the scripture says, nobody does. Nobody seeks him. Our sin is personal. We need more than just self-reform. We need a heart transplant. The heart is sick. Secondly, God's sight is perfect. If you go back to Psalm 14, verse 2, God's sight is perfect. Reading from the NAS, it says, The Lord has looked down from the heavens upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In the original, this is poetic. And there's a word order change here that you wouldn't pick up if you didn't look at the original. But it says, literally, he says the fool, there is no God. But when you get to this verse, it says, Yahweh looks from the heavens. It goes from subject verb to verb subject. And the reason I tell you that is because it emphasizes God's authority. Man does his little thing over here, but Yahweh looks from the heavens is what what the author is telling you. And the word that is used for Yahweh looking down, it means to, to kind of bend oneself forward like this to look out a window. It's kind of an anthropomorphism, and that means that it, it's uh, putting God in human terms so that we can better understand. But look at 2 Kings. The, the word is only used one other time. Uh, 2 Kings 9.30 It says, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. That's the same word. It's the same word. And so the idea is that God is sitting in the vaults of the heaven. Man is down here saying, yeah, whatever, I don't need God. I don't need you. And, and you know, there is no God. And God is looking down from above saying, <laughs> evaluating mankind. That's the picture. It should terrify us. God's sight is perfect. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. I want you to look at Psalm 11.4 real quick, too. You're right there. Flip back over the other way. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. What we're really talking about here is God's omniscience. God sees everything. And what is he looking for? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 14, he is looking for somebody who understands. Anybody who seeks after him. And we get our answer in verse 3, that he's still looking. He's still looking. Again, going back to Genesis. Turn to Genesis 6. is the start of the flood narrative. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor where? He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was looking at mankind, evaluating them, and he found nobody who does good. Everybody's thoughts were completely corrupt except one man. And who was that one man? It was Noah. And you remember over in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, says God remembered Noah. That's, that's our hero there. Uh, flip over to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, verse 1. 
Genesis 11, verse 5. You remember, the men are all congregating in one place, refusing to go out, refusing the creation ordinance that God had told them to go out and fill the earth. They're all staying in one place. They build a tower. uh, And God, it says in verse 5 of chapter 11, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. He's been watching the whole time. And he comes down to evaluate the situation. His sight is perfect. He doesn't miss a thing. One more place. Turn to Genesis 18 and verse 20. You'll remember the situation. Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord had been watching that city for a long time. He sends... And in verse 20 it says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. God was watching them the whole time, and their sin had reached a point to where it was time to destroy them. God had been watching them. His vision is clear. And how did he know to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Because he looked. Do you remember his conversation with Abraham? Hey, if I could find 50 people in there, I won't destroy the city, right? 50 righteous. And Abraham says, how about 40? And God says, okay, I'll take 40. And Abraham says, how about 30? <laughs> As Abraham understood the nature of man. And God, all the, all the way down to 10, hey, if I could find 10 people in the city, I won't destroy it. How many did he find? He didn't find 10. Less than 10. Actually, one. Lot. That was it. That was it. God's vision is clear. His sight is perfect. Folks, this is a word for our culture. Can I just sidebar on this for a moment? We have so many people, not necessarily here, but our culture in particular. You know, we drive into our homes. We, we have automatic garage door openers now. We pull into the garage. The garage door closes. We go into our house, and it's all secret. It's all secret. Nobody knows what happens behind closed doors, right? One person does. Who is that one person? God sees clearly, folks, what goes on behind closed doors. He knows exactly what is happening there. John says uh, in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we delude ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Men in particular, if you struggle with pornography, can I just say that you're not alone in the room? God sees your internet history. God knows what you're doing. He's omniscient. He sees it all. And even if you don't act out on it, He knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's what the Scripture says. There isn't a thought or a deed or an action that doesn't come under the scrutinizing gaze of God. He sees it all. Every last thought. That thought should terrify us. You know, if we compare ourselves to each other, we don't look so bad, do we? You know, if I look around the room, I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm a good guy. You guys compare yourselves to each other, right? We're pretty good people. But who does God compare us to? Himself. He compares us to Himself. He looks to see if there's anybody who understands Him who seeks Him, who, who wants Him. And folks, there isn't a one. You know, I recently heard uh, as uh, when the Pope died that uh, a lot of people were saying, that, you know, the Pope was a good man. He was a really good guy. He did a lot to, to try to better the church. Folks, he's not a good man. The Scripture says there is no one who is good. There is not a doer of good. People hate the doctrine of total depravity because it crushes their pride. That's why people don't talk about it anymore. It crushes pride, and and it brings in an element of pity with the gospel because God has to take pity on people in order to save them. You are so helpless in your sin... You are so corrupt in your nature, you are spiritually a corpse, that God has to 
breathe life into you. And that involves pity. Do you understand that? And that's why people hate this doctrine, because it crushes their pride. Man says, I chose God. They need to choose God too. And that way we elevate ourselves. We need God's grace so much that we don't even have the ability to see how much we need it. When I was a kid, I remember uh, Evil Knievel. How many of you remember <laughs> Evil Knievel and his fancy red, white, and blue stripes? I thought about that as I was watching the mobbies there. They, uh, <laughs> just the red, white, and blue. I didn't mean the stars and stripes stuff. But uh, I was thinking, you know, how many of you remember when he tried to jump the Snake River? Wasn't that comical? I mean, he, he strapped himself into a little rocket pack, put on his little glasses, and, you know, it looked like Wile E. Coyote lighting the fuse, you know? <laughs> and he went <clears throat> straight down. You remember that? Folks, the bridge, the gulf between us and God is farther than the Snake River. It's an eternal gulf. And we're no better than evil can evil with his little rocket pack. We're not going to make it. We don't have it. God sees the sin in our hearts. Even if outwardly we manifest some signs of decency, inwardly we're still corrupt to the core. Our hearts are sick. Charles Spurgeon, I, I love the man. Uh, just listen to this quote. He has such a way with words. He says, Behold the eyes of omniscience ransacking the globe and prying among every people and nation. He who is looking down knows the good, is quick to discern it, would be delighted to find it. But as he views all the unregenerate children of men, his search is fruitless. For of all the race of Adam, no unrenewed soul is other than an enemy to God and goodness. Well, that puts it in a nutshell, huh? You get the picture that God is flipping things over, looking for somebody, ransacking the place, looking for somebody who would seek him. And he's still looking. Our sin is personal. God's sight is perfect. And finally, our situation is perilous. Turn back to Psalm 14 if you're not there already. Verse 3, it says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is God's evaluation now. God has inspected the planet, and this is the conclusion. There's nobody down there that does good. Not a single one. In Hebrew, there is a there, is, there are things called prohibitions. And there are temporary prohibitions and there are permanent prohibitions. And they mean you shall not do this and you shall not do that. But some of them are permanent prohibitions like the Ten Commandments. Others are not always permanent. But that's not what it's talking about here. What this is is called a, it's a particle of non-existence. And what do I mean by that? It means that it's three words in the English that translate there is not. You see that in your text? Look up at verse 1. What does the fool say? There is not, there is no God. That's one word in the Hebrew. There is no. You look down at the second half. The psalmist's evaluation is there is what? No one who does good. Now drop down to verse 3. They all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no, there it is again, there is no one who does good. And most of you probably don't have this in your text, but it says it again in verse 3. There is not even one. We translated it smoothly here for fluidity, but the word is used four times. And it's contrasted by verse 2. You see that? What is the Lord looking for? If there is one person, do you see that? There is not, there is not 
The Lord is looking if there is. There is not. There is not. And the point is that it is as if, it's as if the psalmist is saying, how does God know there is none righteous? Well, here's God talking, because as a matter of fact, I've looked around and I haven't found any. That's how I know. There is not, and then there's that little word in there, even one. Not even one. I've looked and I haven't found any. Again, look at verse 3. They all, they have all. Again, what it means is the totality, the whole of them. There is a wholeness to that word. They all, or the whole of them, have turned aside. In other words, they've turned their back on God. They don't want to have anything to do with him. All of them. The other word, all together, just signifies that they, they take counsel together. They do it as a joint effort. They, all of them, together, don't want anything to do with God. They are corrupt. And the word for corrupt in this, in this one is different than the one in verse 1. Do you see that? The word corrupt is here twice, but this corrupt is different. And this is, uh, you can write down the reference, don't turn there, Job 15, 16. It's the only other use of this word. It says, how much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Man drinks iniquity like water. But the word corrupt describes, um, I don't know if I'll say this word right, putrefaction, like milk that's gone sour. It's a stench. Gross, huh? But that's what it means. They all together have become putrefied. That's what the word means. It's also like corpses. Corpses, once they begin that rapid decay, they start to smell, don't they? That's what he's talking about. You know, marriage counseling, when you, when you bring somebody in for marriage counseling, you tend to avoid words like always and never. Uh, you always do this. You never do that. How many of you have heard those words before? Uh, because they're so all-inclusive, aren't they? It's not fair to say always. It's not fair to say never. But here the Scripture says exactly that. They all, the totality of them, it's all-inclusive. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. See, the Apostle Paul understood the implications of this passage, and so he used it in Romans chapter 3 to paint a picture of the guilt of the entire human race. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are all shut up under sin. And so starting in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 9, he said, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Sound familiar? But then he goes on and he adds more and he heaps up the evidence if you'll look in verse 13. This is not in in Psalm 14. These are strings of pearls from other places. He says, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is pretty condemning of the entire human race. That is our position before God. Our situation is perilous. John Calvin commenting on these verses, he said, Paul's design is to teach us that men are overwhelmed with an inevitable calamity from which they can never emerge unless they are extricated by the mercy of God. Our situation is perilous. We need mercy from outside of ourselves. 
We cannot do it on our own. I think psychology has so crept into the church in the last century that people feel like what they really need is self-esteem or they need a boost, you know? Just give me something that will kind of top it off. That's, I just need Jesus to finish out the package and then I'll be complete. But that's not what the scripture teaches. I, I see the implications of Psalm 14 affecting us in two ways. Number one is evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, people need to be told that they're rotten to the core. You know? Excuse me. You're rotten to the core. Wham! How many, how many people do you think want to hear that? They don't. They want to hear that they're basically good people, that they just need Christ to finish out the deal. But folks, we need to do more than just talk about their sin and talk about the Bible with people. We need to confront them with the fact that they're hopelessly, helplessly lost without God's grace and his mercy. Without divine mercy, we are up a creek, literally. The problem is not just sin. Sin is just a symptom of a diseased heart. People need to be confronted with the truth. As we go through the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit here coming up in John, when Pastor Dave gets there probably in a few weeks, uh, you're going to see how the early church preached to the people in the first century. They told them they were sinners. They told them they crucified their Messiah. They needed to repent. They needed to have self-control. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was one nail after another in the coffin. Second place I think this affects us is child-rearing. Our children do not need self-esteem, folks. What they need is to be told that they're sinners that they were born in sin, they were conceived in sin, they are sinners in desperate need of God's grace. Their heart is sick. Mothers in particular, your children, need to be born a second time. They need a second birth. And elevating self-esteem is like throwing fuel on a fire because it only elevates man's pride and then, in turn, he refuses to seek God more. It only worsens the problem. If you are here this morning relying on the fact that you're essentially a good person compared to everybody else, I do really good things in my life, then I think the scriptures are pretty clear that you're not. You're not a good person. I wouldn't rely on that crutch. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to finish up with this, if you'll flip over there. Jesus, uh, I think, summed this up nicely. Mark chapter 10. You remember the story. Uh, a man came running up to Jesus and he said, he was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And he said to him, One thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor that you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He knew exactly what his problem was. The man had a problem with personal possessions. His heart was greedy. And it says in verse 22, But at these words the young man's face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around, said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? As if great wealth was something that could save you. And looking at them, Jesus said, With men, it, that is salvation, is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. We can't save ourselves. We can't save others. We cannot deliver a soul from death or judgment. It's a good start to share the gospel with somebody, but we need to give them the full gospel and tell them that they are sinners in need of God's grace and that they need to cast themselves upon the mercy of God. If you don't feel like you're a sinner, why would you ever need God's grace? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, it, that is salvation, verse 20, I believe it is, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. We need mercy. Our sin is personal. God's sight is perfect. And our situation is perilous. We need mercy. And lots of it. I believe the greatest gift God gives us is the ability to see our sin and to turn from it. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for your word this morning and I thank you for the truth of the scriptures. Lord, we cannot save a soul by sugarcoating the gospel or making it more palatable. Lord, we must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We must confront people with their sins. And Lord, we ask you for your enablement to do these things because in and of ourselves, Lord, that is a fearful thing to do. Lord, we need your grace this morning. And if there is anyone here who does not know your grace or your mercy, Lord God, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning to the truth of the gospel. Lord, that you would breathe spiritual life into their dead bodies, that they might turn to Jesus Christ and cast themselves upon your mercy. We ask for your Spirit's enablement in these things. In Christ's name, amen.